there's a story that's told by the desert fathers. The story goes something like this. Between these two monks, one older monk and one younger monk, people who spent their lives trying to devote faithfulness to God, the younger monk comes to the older monk and he says, I have a question. I've prayed, I've dedicated, I've meditated, I've contemplated, I've even attempted to cleanse all of my thoughts of impure ways. And I still feel like something is missing. What else is there for me to do? As the younger monk leans back, the older monk in response All he does is stand up and begins to wave his fingers up. The younger monk, like all of us, would ask, what exactly are you doing? And the older monk would say in response to his question, why not become all flame? All flame. What's it mean to become all flame? flame. A matter of fact, what's the question of how do you become all flame? Maybe the closest wording or phrasing that we may have to this is when someone says that they are on fire for God. And usually when we think through the phrase to say that someone is on fire for God, we're usually thinking that, you know, someone has made dramatic turns in their faith and that they're making intense decisions and every day is sleeping, eating, and breathing the ways of God into their life. Does that mean, is that the meaning of all flame? Sometimes when we hear stories like Acts 9, when we think of moments like Saul, we think of maybe that's what it's like to be on fire, to have this intense moment and encounter and then find that your life just picks up and goes after that, that you sleep, eat, and breathe everything of God. And it's this intense, dramatic, and fast relationship with Jesus. Oh, church, don't you find it telling the way that we tell the story of Saul in Acts 9? We tell it as this amazing conversion story. And that it may be, but it's not in the way that you and I would describe conversion. Think about it like this. The story that Acts 9 is telling is one of someone who isn't just far away from God. Saul would have been a Jew. He would have been a Hellenistic Jew, which means that he would have recognized the God of Israel. And that he would have read the scriptures that Christians were reading. He would have taught from those scriptures. And Saul knew of Jesus. But here's where the difference is. Is that Saul moves from knowing of Jesus and persecuting Jesus to knowing Jesus personally. That there isn't just one moment, but that there is moments that lead to this. That there is a process. Everyone knows that you can know things of Jesus and still not know Jesus. Saul in Acts 9 is not just one moment, 
but a moment that starts a process of more moments to come. That there's a process for Saul coming to know Jesus. And think about when it comes to Saul's story. Saul isn't even in a place right after he encounters the risen Lord that he is ready to go and be on fire for God. The scriptures actually say that his eyes were wide open, but he could not see. Can you imagine this? Don't get too heady about it. Saul is not able to see. Saul is stumbling around and needs someone to hold his hand. But here's where we have to lean close into Acts 9. We have to listen to it very carefully because it's not just that Saul is stumbling as he comes to know Jesus. That it's actually the question of not can Saul see, but can people see what God is doing in Saul? See, when we read Acts 9, we immediately think of what are the actions of Saul and how is he going to react to this? But it's actually a flip of the script. The majority of Acts 9 doesn't focus on Saul's actions, even though later in Acts, Luke will write about those. In this chapter, it's all about not Saul's actions, but the reactions of other people to the action of God. And as you can see in that second part that Rachel read, the reactions are everywhere. Let's start with the people who are next to Saul when Saul has the encounter. You hear about them in verse 7. We don't hear about them again. They're not affected by the encounter that Saul has. And then you move over into verse 13, and Ananias, someone who is a servant of God, still has a little bit of a hesitation he, you actually find him saying this, uh, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. In other words, Ananias is hesitant because he's more concerned about what Saul has done than what God is doing in Saul. But he responds. But then you even find as Saul keeps moving, he keeps moving from individual to communal. You have an experience with God. The maturity of God means it will become communal. You don't stay an individual. You lean towards communal. And Saul walks through a lot of different reactions. You've got the Jews in Damascus that are confounded and they're trying to figure out what is this with Saul? And then you have the Christians in Jerusalem being completely hesitant of who Saul even is. And then you have the Jews that are actually in Jerusalem, the Hellenistic Jews, that react of basically like, we got to kill him. There's all sorts of reactions throughout Acts 9. And if Acts 9 is trying to tell us to lean in it anywhere, it is that the reactions of people can sometimes be the action of God. Because Luke takes time to tell us of one more person. One more person that we actually find in verse 27 and 28. We find out about Barnabas. You gotta love Barnabas. 
Big fan of Barnabas. Everyone's a big fan of Barnabas. You know, the way that Luke presents Barnabas in Acts is probably a good representation of his actual life. We don't know a ton about Barnabas, but we know a couple things. First of all, in Acts 4, we know that Barnabas has given away property to the church for the health and wealth of the church. We also know that Barnabas has been someone who has been in the journey of Jesus followers in the way, along the way. So let me sum it up for you with Barnabas, if you haven't caught it. Barnabas is a wealthy, long-standing member of the church. And someone like Saul comes in, who isn't just a person that he would feel uncomfortable with, is a person that's been against him. And Barnabas, in verse 27, reacts different than any other reaction. I mean, look at the verbs that just get used in this. Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, described for them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoken to him. And then you find that the bold words of Barnabas Turn around in verse 28, and it says it like this. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Did you catch it? That Barnabas speaks boldly about Saul. Saul turns around and speaks boldly to the people that are in the town. Do you see it, church? When you speak boldly, things boldly speak out of other people. That there is this relationship that goes with the work of God in the community. That when you speak boldly, when you pour into, those things tend to pour out. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. In verse 15, if you'll see it on your screen here. When God is talking to Ananias, he says that, he, so basically, Ananias is like, I don't know, Lord, have you checked this guy out? Have you looked at his profile before we do this? And God says, he is an instrument who I've chosen to bring my name before the Gentiles. And you got to love this. The Gentiles, the kings, and before the people of Israel. Don't take that slide down. If you notice the first word that's there, it's the word Instrument. Can I tell you about the word instrument for a minute? When Luke writes about this, which he writes Luke and Acts together, when he uses this word, it has a sense of saying that he is a vessel, that he's a cup. In essence, he's trying to get the sense that it's like holding water. That Saul is an instrument, one that God is going to pour out, not just to the Gentiles, not just to the rulers, but to all people. And before Saul goes off to Tarsus, we find a moment where Saul is pouring out, but he's also poured into by Barnabas. That we find that as Saul goes out to speak boldly, he is also boldly spoken to. In the language of the Rolodex, we would say that Barnabas is an alkalite. Now, if you just read that word and you said, alkahoo, 
An alkali would just <laughs> an alkali would just be this. This would be a role that's often used in high church to where when a service is happening, this would be the role of the person who would help as far as lighting the candles and keeping them lit during a service. That would be an alkali. And here's the thing. There are a lot of congregations out there that don't use designated alkalites. Last time I checked, I, I don't think we have one around here. But just because that's not a position that every church has in a service, it is still a service that's needed in every single church. There's a need for an alkalite. There's a need for someone who can light the flame, who can keep the, fan, the flame alive, and can fan the flame to get stronger. The church, the movement of God happens with people who fan the flame, people who are alkalites, people who may be like Barnabas. So back to that story when we talked about becoming all flame. There was a priest that actually recognized something about that story. He reflected on it and he said, I think I have an illustration of what it means to become all flame. He said, I think of it like this. I think of my heart like a mansion. And I think of this mansion that's got dozens and dozens and dozens of rooms. And when I give my life to Jesus, I give Jesus the rooms, every compartment, every outlet of life, what my control is, where I invest my time, how I handle conflict with other people, all are different rooms and I give it to him. But he said, becoming all flame is kind of like this. As you get older and as you mature in the faith, you find out that that initial giving Jesus all of your life was sometimes more like 80% of your life that there's still rooms that you and I hold on to. the rooms that we still don't want to give up, whether it be the pride, whether it be how you want to handle control, how you want to handle finances, whatever the room is. And he described it like this, becoming all flame is giving up the rest of the rooms. Becoming all flame is the process of one by one letting the flame of Christ enter into the room in which we're so difficult to not let go of it. That there is a process in which we become all flame. The process of being able to let the light of Christ be in every room, every chamber of our hearts. And here's the most powerful thing about the work of God. You want to know how you get the last 20% of the chambers of your heart. Do you want to know how to give up that last piece to become flame? It doesn't come through shame. It doesn't come through demand. But it comes through encouragement. It comes through each of us recognizing the places of our heart that God wants us next to give up and give to God. It's encouraging one another which rooms in which Christ can still enter into, even though we're unsure of what those rooms are. It takes maturity on behalf of a church 
to be able to be a church that is full of alkalites, full of encouragers. You know why? Because one of the greatest signs that your discipleship is increasing and growing is if you care about other people's development just as much as your own development. And that's hard to do. That requires a life where our head is always on a swivel, where our lives are always asking the question of, I wonder, I wonder what's the next step for them. I, I wonder how their life is going. I wonder what questions of Jesus that person is asking right now. It takes maturity to be able to see and call out and encourage that. There's a Spanish saint by the name of St. Teresa of Olivia. And she says this wonderful quote. She says, Christ has no body except your body. Christ no longer has feet except your feet on this planet. Christ has no longer any eyes on this planet except your eyes. It takes the body of Christ to encourage one another to become all flame, to mature in the faith, to see the ways that God is working and moving and asking more of us inch by inch when we're willing to give it to him. It takes a community. If I had to guess, going back to that sheet of paper, if we were to look in that second column that you have, maybe pick that sheet up for a second. If you were to look at that second column of names that you have there, I would assume that this column would have people that if you looked at their name and I said, how would they be an encourager? There would be words that would be so close to your heart that you, some of you could actually quote the words that they said to you right back to me. And as you look at that sheet, if you think about how that person was able to become on the sheet is because they didn't just live their life, but they had interest in your life and that they were willing to say something bold in your life in the body of Christ. Let's ask this question for the third column. Who's somebody you need to encourage? Maybe here's the phrase that would be used up on this slide. Who is in need of a bold word of encouragement from you? Who needs encouraging? Think about who is someone who's a work in progress right now. Not someone who's finished, not someone who looks like they have it all together. Who is someone that's a work in progress? Someone who doesn't already have it together, but are embracing the process of God transforming them. Think about who is stumbling into faith. Who may need some hand-holding? Who has their eyes wide open but are still unsure of the work of Jesus? 
Who is God doing great things in and around? Are they a caretaker? Is it a high school student that just graduated? Is it a newlywed couple? Is it someone going through a job loss? Is it someone considering how to shift their family and be more discipleship focused? Who is it? Write those names down in the third column. So let me finish by speaking about what it would mean to say a bold word of encouragement to the people you just listed in that third column. There's a professor by the name of Diane Glyer who writes beautiful piece about talking about what encouragement really means. Because let's be honest, sometimes when we say encouragement, we're just talking about like, boy, hey, I appreciate you. Hey, you're great. And Diane would say, That's great as far as a start, but that's not exactly encouragement. She describes it this way. There's a difference between encouragement and praise. Praise is what we tend to reach for when we're trying to appreciate a person. The way she would phrase it is she would say, praise is appreciating something that someone has done. To be able to say something like, hey, I really appreciate how you handled that situation, That's praise, but it's not encouragement. Encouragement is not appreciation towards something the individual has done. It's encouragement towards the individual themselves. It's the ability to look at someone's life and say, I appreciate you for these reasons of who you are. I believe you have it in you. I'm not just spitting back what I've seen you do with your life. I'm telling you what I believe you're becoming and what I appreciate with this. Let me give you a story for example. When I first came to Highland, uh, I had one of the leaders at Highland pull me into what they called the tape room the first day I was here, which if you've never been to the tape room before, a couple of years back, we actually like used to have services in this church. Like It was crazy. Christians would actually come in here. They would sit down, would worship together. They, I know, they'd sing all of the same crazy. Anyways, the first day that I came, in the back of the worship auditorium, there's what they call the tape room. And the tape room is just this room that is full of shelves upon shelves upon shelves of all the different sermons in the history of the church at Highland. And I remember when they took me in there, I remember looking at the shelves and being like, wow, you're telling me this is all of the work that Lynn Anderson did. Wow, you're telling me these are all the sermons that Mike Cope did. And you could just go row by row by row. And I remember just being overwhelmed and being like, wow, did you bring me in here? Because you believe that I could one day do this in the kingdom of God. 
I'll never forget the, what the leader said to me. He just took a deep breath and, no, no, I didn't. Because these preachers, they knew how to not fling their hands everywhere while they actually preached. And I remember being like, what do you mean? But he said, that's the thing I want you to actually remember, Zane. And then he sat down, he looked me in the eyes, and he said, I brought you in here not because of what I believe that people you could do for people, but I believe in you because who you are and who I believe you're going to be for people. Not because of anything that you've done, Zane, but because of the person that you're going to be. And every single time I enter this worship auditorium, as empty as it may be right now, I think of those words, those encouraging words that were said to me. Saul, who is also Paul in Romans, is going to write in Romans 5, 5, he is going to say, God has poured his love into us. My question for you is, why don't you pour some of that love out into God's what is stopping you from encouraging someone? For some of you who are younger in the faith that are very excited about the kingdom of God, here's my last question for you. When's the last time you've encouraged someone older than you? Because they are partners in the kingdom of God as well. For those of you who maybe struggled with the second column and were asking the question, I don't know how many people have encouraged me throughout my life. Why should I encourage other people? Here's my question to you. Do you want that feeling and that story to continue on? What if you're the person to change that and encourage other people? Because you never know what you may pour into someone will one day pour out of them. One of our children wrote this prayer two weeks ago as Suzetta wrote it on the chalkboard. They wrote, thank you for friends who encourage us and make us brave. Church, I hope you're brave this week. I hope you leave this service and you encourage the people who are on the third column. I hope you're brave with your words because church, you need to remember this, that our faith is not just passed down, it's also passed around. May you be an alkali this week.